I'm Maria Tutizian. And I'm Rubina Margosian, and welcome to our last podcast for the year. And this week, we'll be presenting an overview of 2023. Yes, but we can't promise that we'll be able to cover every single event that happened because it was a rather uh, tumultuous year. And uh, Rubina, last year for our Christmas card, our holiday card from EVN, we had sent out one that said Happy News Year because we had hoped it would be a better year. That was it, ironic, right? Yeah, it turned out to be uh, possibly he, the worst year ever. Here's the proof why that was yeah. <laughs> a very ill-imagined card. Right, right. However, for holidays, maybe we need a bit of imagination and hope. Indeed. 2023 started with the uh, blockade of Artsakh, an ongoing blockade that had started since December 12th of last year. And, uh, you know, Maria, this was not the first time that uh, Azerbaijan had blocked the road. The first mm-hmm. time was a couple of hours. And we thought this time maybe it's going to be a day or two or a couple of hours. Little did we know that uh, how, how it was going to end with the ethnic cleansing of the entire indigenous population of Artsakh. Yeah, that's right. And I remember talking to a couple of people from Artsakh who who were saying the exact same thing and they were saying oh it's going to be a couple of hours it's going to be a couple of days and it ended up being a 10 month long uh, blockade um, now coming back to what we're trying to do here today although the calamity in Artsakh did not leave a lot of room to focus on other issues a few other major events did take place in 2023 and we will be talking about it and just to come back to uh, December 12 of 2022 was a group of so called environmental eco activists who blockaded the Lachin Corridor under sort of the presence or in the presence of Russian peacekeepers. And then we and know- then we found out that under the protection of the Russian peacekeepers, actually. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, uh, the whole idea was that they are eco-activists and they were protesting the exploitation of the Kashan and the Drombo mines in, in Artsakh. And they were very worried about the environmental impact of these mines. Even at the beginning, no one believed this, actually, Maria. Uh, it's like yeah. Armenia has been... Well, Armenia actually called for a UN Security Council meeting still in December of 2022. Mm-hmm. So we entered the year already having had that meeting and having called out these activists as non-activists. There was already proof that some were military, some were government affiliated. There was no, nowhere environmental <laughs> <laughs> about that. And of course, that famous poster by Navarty Erganyan and the incident with the Dove was very telling of. Right. And just for those who don't know, uh, an Azerbaijani woman in a, in a fur coat was holding on to a dove and speaking in Azerbaijani and um, as she's speaking she basically strangles the, the dove and as she lets it go to fly away it just drops to the ground and it sort of became a symbol for everything that happened um, and you know Rubina during the initial stages of the blockade it w- there was still some humanitarian aid getting into uh, Artsakh uh, by the Russian peacekeepers and by the International Committee for the Red Cross uh, not only were they delivering necessities like flour and sanitary uh, hygiene uh, items but also people who who needed medical attention were being transferred back and forth, although the population could not come out and we couldn't go in, uh, as you know. And people who were already in Armenia were stuck here and some of them never got to return yeah. uh, to their homes. And, yeah. and do you remember uh, it was uh, there was a group of children here uh, for Eurovision uh, who then ended up being separated from their parents for months. And that incident when they actually eventually went back and they were filmed uh, yeah. by the Azerbaijani yeah. border troops at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in the initial stages of the blockade, the Aliyev regime made life 
even harder to bear. Uh, they were cutting off gas and electricity supplies, you know, in the dead of winter, constantly targeting farmers who were farming uh, even in the early spring. You know, they couldn't even grow their own food because they kept coming under attack. And, and in order to monitor the energy crisis and to mitigate uh, the issue, the problems, authorities in Artsakh had to resort to rolling blackouts to try to manage the limited resources um, that they had. And there was heavy reliance on what was retained of the hydropower plants. Um, and then as a result, the Sarsang water reservoir was almost completely depleted. So it was a very, very difficult situation for the 10 months of the blockade. Well, increasingly difficult. And eventually we know how it ended. And also internet was an issue on and off. Yeah. And a major communication was lost between Army and Artsakh for uh, some periods of time at, at that point, which mm -hmm. was very concerning also. Well, uh, just kind of the narratives that were going on around those times where uh, the Zangezur corridor idea, which was Azerbaijan's own interpretation of opening uh, communication, communication routes, routes uh, regarding the, uh, well, interpretation of the November 9th uh, ceasefire agreement, uh, well, was a very hot topic at that point. Very soon we realized that Azerbaijan was offering, in fact, on February 18, after a meeting uh, with Blinken and Pashinyan, uh, President Aliyev said that well, we were proposing that setting up like uh, checkpoints both on the Lachin corridor mm -hmm. and the Zangezur corridor. So there was like this, this narrative of... Uh, building artificial equivalence between the Lachin mm -hmm. corridor and uh, the so-called Zangezur corridor that Azerbaijan was demanding for the longest time. And it was kind of in discussion until late summer this year mm -hmm. where uh, it was demanding a corridor to Armenia. Yeah. And this is important because what they were asking was an extraterritorial road with no Armenian control. And you're right, they, were, they kept linking it to the Lachin corridor, but now we know that 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 narrative has died down because they did open an alternative road to Nakhichevan, which is Azerbaijan's exclave, through Iran. Uh, so, well, then they moved on to other topics, such as calling Armenia Western Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Uh, but just getting back to... But um, uh, just to... Because this is going to be a kind of a long podcast, and <laughs> just to take a moment and recognize the fact that a lot of the time we were thinking maybe we should grant Azerbaijan that corridor because then we will be saving the uh, population of Artsakh or we will be saving Artsakh. So that false equivalence did have an effect on us. And that was a, a lot of part of societal discussions here and a lot uh, cause for a lot of tension, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. that this came after the 2020 September attack on Armenia proper by Azerbaijan. 2022. Too, too. Sorry. Yeah. Well, Armenia was trying to use all of the diplomatic tools it had at its disposal to to have uh, Azerbaijan lift the blockade. And I think it's important to say that there were so many calls from international centers, uh, international um, organizations, from leaders from different countries. On February 22, the International Court of Justice uh, indicated that Azerbaijan should, um, you know, uh, take all measures at its disposal to ensure unimpeded movement of persons, vehicles, and cargo along the Lachin corridor in both directions. Earlier, the European Court of Human Rights had also sent an urgent notice to the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe. Um, and then again in um, July, I believe, the ICJ again uh, reiterated its call to lift its call several times. And this court decision was mentioned in every other uh, statement mm -hmm. by world re leaders, and mm -hmm. it is a binding 
was supposed to be a binding court decision, which yeah. Azerbaijan never adhered to, regardless of how many calls there mm-hmm. were. Now, in the meantime, there were ongoing provocations. We're going to concentrate in this first part on Artsakh, but then, of course, there are parallel issues happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We'll get to that in a minute. But there are some key moments uh, in that 10-month-long blockade that were important and key turning points. Uh, the first, well, among them was on March 5, when Azerbaijani armed forces attacked a group of police officers officers of the Artsakh Passport and Visa Department during a shift change uh, in an area that was known as Khaybalu. Three officers, Armenian officers, were killed as a result of that attack, and one officer had sustained a gunshot wound. Azerbaijan had claimed that two of its servicemen were killed. You know, everything has been difficult. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> these are the indications yeah. that mm-hmm. the circle is being tightening and indications of what Azerbaijan was planning mm-hmm. to do, because uh, just days later, the uh, Azerbaijani ambassador to Germany had uh, just publicly mentioned this idea that a checkpoint is a must now, otherwise the situation is not so. Mm -hmm. We we saw it coming. Well, and that's what happened. The second thing that happened after that was Azerbaijan, as you said, Rubina installed a checkpoint at the entrance of the Lachin Corridor, limiting even more movement through the corridor uh, by installing this checkpoint. On March 30, Azerbaijan's armed forces, in the meantime, had taken over several strategic uh, high grounds in the Lachin region. They had blocked the Goris-Stepanagert Highway on the Der Aravno section. At that point, the only road to reach Artsakh from Armenia remained this new Der Gornizor road that bypassed the blocked uh, section, which linked, I mean, it was a very sort of complex chess game that was taking place. Well, because they were... Uh Still roads that, uh, not official, like not highways, but mm-hmm. they linked Artsakh to Armenia at that point. And there was some kind of communication going back and forth, which were basically takeover by Azerbaijan by March. Mm-hmm. And on, March. Yeah, and on April 23, Azerbaijan installed the checkpoint, controlling the limited amount of supplies that were being transferred to Artsakh, as well as started monitoring the exit and entry of people from Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, an utter and full uh, locate on June 15, after a group of Azerbaijani border guards, accompanied by the Russian peacekeepers, attempted to advance in the direction of the Hakari Bridge. This is at the entrance of the Lachin Corridor, basically bordering Armenia. In order to plant a flag on the territory of Armenia, the Armenian side was able to prevent uh, them from doing so. However, following the provocation, Azerbaijan banned all humanitarian passenger and cargo transportation through the Lachin Corridor, including for the Russian peacekeepers and and the international community right. of the And it Red was at Cross. this point that things started to get very, very dark because now it was under total and complete blockade. And to mitigate the already dire situation, um, at the time, um, on June 16, Artsakh State Minister, uh, Kurgan Ersesian, said that Artsakh will enact uh, restrictions on fuel supply to uh, individuals. Uh, he said public transport will continue to operate. Reports started emerging that shops in Artsakh were running out of, you know, important foodstuffs that were being imported, such as flour, cooking oil, sugar. Artsakh's Minister of Health reported that all non-essential surgeries and checkups were to be put on hold in all hospitals throughout Nagorno-Karabakh. This is where also cafes and restaurant clo- uh, restaurants yeah. closed. The restrictions were even funerals, uh, no more than 50 people. And... Uh, 
And at this point, on July 29, uh, an Artsakh citizen, Vakif Khachatarian, was kidnapped by Azerbaijani officers while crossing into Armenia for medical treatment. He was taken from uh, an ICRC car. He was among a group of patients being transferred to Armenia for a heart surgery. He remains in Azerbaijan until now. He's been put on trial. He's been given a verdict. He's been accused of killing Azeris during the uh, First First War. war. Uh, This is charges that, uh, you know, not even an Armenian side or a lawyer by his choice is involved in this mm-hmm. case. So basically he is at the mercy of Azerbe- the Azerbaijani uh, government and not him. Several others are still there. At this point, they were also the football players who were coming to Armenia mm-hmm. to continue their education again. And they were kept in uh, Baku for several days. And I then think released. Least, right. And released just for walking on the Azerbaijani flag while in Artsakh. Yeah, well, we should remind them what Aliyev did when he went to Stepanakir but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, in the meantime, in August of 2023, uh, Luis Moreno Ocampo, who's a former prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, uh, published a, a report saying that the government of Azerbaijan had committed genocide uh, uh, through its blockade of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. And this became, again, uh, sort of a, like a lightning rod. And then people started talking about it because I remember, Rubina, you know, throughout the year in our conversations with, you know, people representing different um, diplomatic missions from international organizations whenever we were talking and writing and, you know, trying to raise a red flag about a a possible ethnic cleansing. Um, We were told we were overly emotional, that this would never happen, that they wouldn't allow it to happen. And the more we talked about it, the more we were just sort of dismissed. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, on every level, it was journalists, it was uh, academics, it was international organizations uh, like the Lemkin Institute issuing several alerts. It was Human Rights Watch. It mm-hmm. was uh, it was not just us. It, uh, there were so many before Ocampo also and after Ocampo, there were so many alerts and warnings issued and concerns. But Yeah, but yeah. then we saw what happened. I'm going to be uh, lost for words a lot during this podcast. <laughs> We've been lost for words for a long time. Well, uh, the next stage that really, again, uh, there were so many, I mean, how many turning points could there be? But there were so many moments uh, throughout the blockade. In September 1, Araig Harutyunyan, the last elected president of the Republic of Artsakh, resigned. He said that the decision uh, to resign was made two days before, following discussions he had had with other political actors and with the wider public. So my thought at the time, Rubina, was that in the middle of a blockade, why are you resigning? Why are you leaving the people in such a state of um, unknowing, of not knowing what what could happen? Uh, but then we saw uh, on September 9, Artsakh's parliament elected Samvel Sharamanyan as president of Artsakh. Uh, he was the only candidate. He received 22 votes in favor and one vote against out of a total of 33 parliamentarians. And uh, actually only 10 days after Sharamanyan was elected president at approximately 1 p.m. on September 19, this was, Azerbaijan launched a large-scale offensive against Nagorno-Karabakh in, <laughs> needless to say, blatant violation of the November 9, 2020 trilateral statement. The conditions of the ceasefire were not initially very clear for us. Uh, we know that there was a ceasefire agreement. We knew that there were some major points that were being discussed. Well, let me tell you what how how I remember that day, Rup. So we we see the, the decree, right, of the, the ceasefire uh, announcement, and it's 
issued initially only in Armenian and in Russian. So our staff, some of our staff members quickly translate, and, and I'm reading the English translation. I'm saying, no, no, there's something wrong with this translation. But they go back, they check the Armenian, they check the Russian, because in that announcement, ceasefire announcement, it says that the remaining units of Armenia's armed forces will withdraw from the Republic of Artsakh. There were no units of the Armenian armed forces. But then, you know, later Shahramanian later said that he was, you know, that was uh, one of the conditions that was placed on him by the Azerbaijani side, and he had signed it under duress. Um, but anyway, so so that decree, um, first of all, we were very happy that there would be a ceasefire, but the conditions under which that ceasefire were announced were, were very, very concerning. It also suggested that the population of Artsakh get acquainted with the reintegration policies that Azerbaijan was uh, was uh, offering. And then we saw what happened. And so then, four days yeah, later, on, on September 24, all of a sudden the Lachin Corridor is now open. I mean, I don't want to say it was a trickle at first because that first day there was a couple of thousand people who were able to cross uh, into into Armenia, and we realized that an exodus, the mass displacement, had had begun. Just to be fair, we're saying that the the corridor was open, but the conditions and the duration mm -hmm. were not clear. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So mm -hmm. later, much later, talking to a lot of journalists from Artsakh, talking to people from Artsakh, they were under the impression that the uh, corridor would be open only for a limited amount of time and could be closed at any given point. So it was not that the blockade was lifted. It was kind of the narrative was that it has been open for evacuation, even though that's never what they called it. Exactly. Uh, so yes, you're right. The first day I was checking just now a little bit. The first day it was by the by 10 p.m. It was a thousand fifty people had crossed. Yeah. Had crossed into. Yeah, Armenia. I remember that number as well. But then what happened the following day was I think I will never forget that day. I think there are many days I won't forget, but that day was just I could. It was apocalyptic. A fuel depot that had uh, been storing that had stored forty-two thousand liters of fuel exploded. Um, this is just on the outskirts of the capital, Stepanagerd, and it was such a massive explosion. And the tragedy was that, again, what you said earlier, people didn't know; they weren't well informed. How long is the corridor going to be open? They didn't have fuel. Remember, there was a, you know, a fuel shortage toward the last week. No electricity, hardly yeah. any communication. So the September 19 attack had happened. So we had already lost villages and uh, areas in uh, Azerbaijan had taken over. So people from those areas had already come to Stepanaget. They were all sitting at the airport because the oh, Russian God. side yeah. had actually said there would be aerial evacuation. People were expecting the municipality was calling on people basically from what we understood later mm -hmm. to go to to the airport right to the Stepanakert airport so this is displacement within a blockade yeah. uh, at this point people not knowing who has survived who is where who is in what shelter yeah. they didn't have the, communication they didn't have communication uh, so just to give a full sure and we'll never be able to give a full description of what was happening yeah. it was uh, chaos it was basically chaos. chaos and in that chaos this fuel depot explodes. Because all of a sudden, the uh, basically we found out later that this was a military depot where they had fuel and they opened it up for people who could be, basically for them to have fuel to leave if they wanted. And all, of course, understandably, people were flocking to be able to 
make it out of that corridor as long as it's open. Right. And 218 people were killed because of that explosion. Another 120 injured, some of them horrifically, and they're still being treated. 21 people are still missing. Uh, it's still not clear, really. Um, we've heard many versions of what happened and how it did happen. I just remember, um, you know, we were glued to social media and whatever the journalists from Artsakh were being able to report. I remember one of them, um, you know, walking through the hospital in Stepanagert and just the condition and the, the, the utter chaos. And it's hard now to, to when we're being forced to, to remember all of that, it was this cannot be happening. I mean, in the middle of, of this human tragedy, we have one tragedy on top of another. And that's a video in particular that you mentioned, Maria, someone just like running to the uh, hospital and there's no one. And there are like random patients in some rooms and there's no this staff, was no one. Also, a lot of the uh, healthcare staff were already on their way to, to come to Armenia. So, And this plight no of the doctors, please, please, whoever's available, please come to the hospital at this point. Eventually, and it's just like bad weather. So even at this point, Armenia is trying to negotiate an airlift for these patients mm. so that they can, or at least take uh, medicine and medication for this help. And the weather is not permitted. And it was so late it was at done night. only the, yeah. the next day. Yeah. Yeah, it was it it it's it was really uh, quite unbelievable. And um, just again to put things into perspective, so 218 were killed. On that day, the attack that had happened on September 19, as a result of that attack, 200 soldiers and civilians were killed, 231 servicemen and 80 civilians were injured, and 12 civilians and 30 soldiers are still missing. So just to put that fuel depot into, <laughs> into, into context or perspective, we lost as many people because of that explosion as we did on the day of uh, Azerbaijan's attack on Artsakh? Well, uh, the UN finally managed to send a fact-finding mission to Nagorno-Karabakh after, after there was no one left there. Uh, even though, uh, my respects to the International Red Cross, they went and they still discovered people who yeah. were left behind who were not a able to, uh, to or didn't, even uh, this one pe family that didn't know what was happening yeah. because they were not in Stepanakert and they didn't have any connection or, uh, or internet. So the UN went, uh, did fact-finding mission, uh, did a fact-finding mission. I didn't know, I don't know what they found. They straight, reported straight founding uh, 50 to 1,000 people which That's is a, a kind of number. like a really uh, unclear number. However, according to uh, other sources, there are today uh, around 25 to 30 people, Armenians, still living in Artsakh. Right. So to put that into perspective, into context, over 100,000 left in a matter of days. And you went uh, to the border, Rubina, on the 26th, I believe. Yes. Because I remember we were sitting here in the office and, you know, at times like this, we're not sure what to do uh, often. I know that sounds uh, a little strange, but do we go and report from the ground or do we, you know, try to get the word out in English and report, you know, what we know? And, and just to kind of explain our dilemma, we're a small group of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, when times like this, we can't spare mm -hmm. <laughs> a workforce I'm yeah, I, yeah. I, because sometimes I wonder if I'm better off being here and helping translate and edit or post or I'm better mm -hmm. off at the web. But sometimes it's very clear. You got to go. And you went. And I know we've talked about this in, in, in our previous weeks in review. But just for those who are just joining us today, tell me um, if you can 
what that experience was like. You were right there as thousands and thousands of cars were crossing into Armenia. I think I still, to this day, have this recurring thought that thank God everyone is safe. Right. Thank God everyone is uh, is alive. I also today, not remembering those days, but also putting into perspective of what's happening uh, with Israel and uh, Gaza, what's happening to the Palestinians, how long that has happened, how inhumane the world is, and how little people's lives mean to, to, to the international community almost, and to the world, and how much even activism or voicing concern or protests do almost nothing, and children are... That day, I, I or that experience in Gornizor and Goris look very different to me right now mm. as to what it was like back then. Uh, back then, I'm like, I kind of wrote about this, I think, in, in that little because I couldn't do a stand up. It, it felt so weird to be standing there. And while these people are coming kind of reporting, speaking on their behalf, mm. it really felt weird. And this is kind of like being an army. And if I was not an army and I could have maybe sure. done it or it was the sense that they didn't know if they had survived yet or not. They were still in the ordeal. Maria, it was very fast. Uh, and I said this before, these people crossed over basically completely to an unknown circumstance. They're not coming to a, a strange country. They're not coming to a strange place. There's some sense of uh, home and familiarity here. But honestly, I, even we had to, I also had to this because this um, juxtaposition of our Hayastansi and Arsakhsi, people from Arsakh and people from Hayastan, and that presumed tension uh, as to how expecting uh, accepting we are of one another was a big concern for me. Luckily, mm. that is not what we experience since. That is not what people from Artsakh are saying. Sometimes they say this is our home too. I see like these posts or articles or interviews and kind of like that's the small relief that I feel after that uh, experience where I'm like, yeah, they're coming. We're, be we're asking them to choose where they're going to leave and how they're going to, you know, where they're going to settle, their lives. organize their latter, uh, lives. They don't know at this point if they're going back or not. And we basically ask them to organize their lives. We help them organize their lives. We, um so anyway, um, I can talk about this a lot until something uh, meaningful comes out of my <laughs> mouth. But uh, what I was thinking and feeling back then and uh, now are drastically different. Well, to say that it was um, a harrowing experience, it continues to be uh, that way, uh, especially for the displaced and ethnically cleansed uh, Armenians who are now uh, dispersed throughout uh, the Republic. Um, some um, keep moving from place to place. They, they they can't figure out, you know, there are large families and, you know, some have come from villages where farming is all they know and they're looking for similar places to, you know, to reside. Others are, are in Yerevan and um, trying to figure out, you know, life and work and it's being suspended and, and not really knowing and having that hope of being able to go back again. So 6,500 people from Artsakh mm. have left Armenia from, uh, this is the official number that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, we didn't know what kind of status they were going to receive in Armenia. This was a big part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. We, as a media organization, to know what words to use, we were trying to figure out sure. they're internally displaced, they're not, are they refugees? Uh, 
yeah. w- w- what was what was going to be their status or they did have armenian passports where these passports by default make them citizens of armenia here be, give them the same rights to vote for example mm-hmm. in armenia uh well uh, eventually they were given the option of uh having a refugee status mm-hmm. or applying for an armenian citizenship which would be granted so we don't have the numbers right now as to how many people from Artsakh have opted to receive mm-hmm. the armenian citizenship and how many mm-hmm. have the uh, refugee status mm-hmm. yeah and just to go back for a second i mean uh, as the ethnic cleansing was taking place and after Artsakh had been completely depopulated you know the world individual states international organizations strongly condemned Uh, the ethnic cleansing, they passed a few resolutions, sent humanitarian aid and kind of moved forward. And I think there's a couple of things we need to mention that we didn't. Um, that Armenia sent about 18 trucks or 18 tons of humanitarian aid to Gornizor. The French also came with aid. This was after the total blockade. These trucks were not allowed into Artsakh. And it was just, it was the most absurd situation. You know, we have everything that, not everything, but at least a portion of what the population needs um, right at the border and it wasn't let in. And at that time, I think it's important to mention that, you know, Samantha Power was here, Yuri Kim, who's the assistant secretary of state. Who in Gornizor. Front of, well, before Gornizor, who in front of Congress, before she came, said that, you know, ethnic cleansing was a red line for them. But they both came in the middle of, of our national tragedy. And they went to Gornizor, they took a couple of photos and they left, and then one day they'll, as I say to everybody, and then, well, basically what the international community said, and this is not literally, but I am being very truthful to, to to what they were saying is like, oh, they were naive enough to believe that Azerbaijan would keep its promise and not uh, resort to yeah. violence, oh. and then they were as shocked and surprised. Meanwhile, and we were not. <laughs> well, I think in that context, it's important to discuss uh, what happens to the Russian peacekeeping contingent. Uh, again, after the November 9, 2020 uh, ceasefire statement, it was agreed that Russian peacekeepers would be deployed for a period of five years, after which time, if the sides agreed, they, they would remain for another five years. Well, there are no Armenians left to protect, and I'm saying this with um, quotation marks on my fingers. But they're reporting quite regularly <laughs> saying there were no ceasefire good. violations. <laughs> So they continue to remain in Artsakh. And just, uh, I believe today, Azerbaijan's foreign affairs minister, Jehun Bayramov, said that the Russian peacekeepers can't stay until the end of 2025 when their mandate runs out. It's not clear what they're doing there at the moment because there's nobody there. Well, and also another interesting detail, or maybe not so much a detail, where part of the ceasefire agreement was that the Artsakh Defense Army would disarm mm-hmm. and they would hand in all the weaponry uh, arsenal to the Russian peacekeepers for the purpose of being de- to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. even a month later, the Russian peacekeepers disseminate this information that everything has been sent to Russia for repairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just just an right. know, interesting detail. Right. And another thing um, it, with respect uh, to what was happening with the blockade in 2022, in December 20, even starting then, right after a week after the blockade, the UN Security Council, upon Armenia's request, discussed the blockade. A number of countries directly called out Azerbaijan, demanding its uh, immediate reopening. And then this year, on August uh, 16, and again on September 21, UN Security Council met. No resolutions were passed, and if I'm not mistaken, and please nobody kill me, I think uh, the U.S. blocked any resolution 
to um, that the council could have passed. Uh, but then again, you know, we had the ICJ um, ruling. <laughs> ruling that was supposedly binding. And of course, Baku and Aliyev did not uh, adhere to those rulings. Also, the situation on Armenia's border with Azerbaijan has not been calm throughout the year. There were several incidents and several deaths, uh, military deaths that we need to also mention sure i mean it started in april on april 1 there what happened after the ceasefire agreement was um a number of villages including aravno were handed over to the azerbaijani side and a new corridor was being built uh now uh, so there was a change of the roads uh, and before the change armenian and azerbaijan had agreed that border guards of the two countries were to be deployed on both sides of the border according excuse me along the that section and due to misinterpretation of maps during that deployment, Azerbaijani units, well, this is their side of the story, advanced into Armenian territory, about 100 to 300 meters in five different areas without waiting for any kind of prearranged adjustments. And they started to position themselves and carried out engineering works. Um, so now there's a lot of dispute. And because the road has not been demarcated, delimited, uh, Azerbaijan was using this throughout the year to constantly, you know, try to push into Armenia proper on April 11. They opened fire at Armenian servicemen in a Sunik region's Der village. There was uh, some skirmishes that took place uh, then on uh, April 20 again. So, and uh, it was always in different directions, right? It was in Kerar Kunik, it was in Sunik. There was a, on April 20, you know, for about three hours, Azerbaijani armed forces shelled Armenian military positions near Verin Shorja. This is in the Kerar Kunik region. They also targeted Armenian units that were working on sort of fortifications. Um, they fired toward the Sotk gold mine again in Kerar Kunik, resulting in the Several evacuation so, yeah, of employees. Maybe we also need to go back uh, also to 2022 with the Jermuk incidents mm-hmm. incursions here. This whole demarcation and demilitation process. Mm-hmm. There's a working group on both sides from Armenia and Azerbaijan on the level of deputy prime ministers and from Armenia at least and uh, working on this supposedly. What Russia has been saying all this time is saying, I've got the maps, you can't do without me. And this has been part of the narrative Mm -hmm. uh, with all of this. And why we're going to go into Armenia's foreign policy shift or talk Mm -hmm. about it pretty soon. Uh, It's coming. We can't avoid the year talking about the year without that. Um, So when the Jermuk incidents happened, incidents especially that was a turning point that started. And well, Russia's response was that we don't know if this is an incursion into your territory because your border has never been demarcated and delimited. So we maybe might send a fact-finding mission if you want. This is CSTO talking. And uh, this is basically also kind of paved the way into a lot of the developments for this year and Armenia's foreign policy. Yeah. So basically in April and May, there were these um, constant skirmishes. And then in June, Azerbaijan shifted its target, this time uh, targeting a a steel plant that was being constructed in the village of Yerask. And this was just 400 meters meters from the Azerbaijani border on the Nakhichevan side. On June 14, Indian nationals working on the on construction of the factory came under Azerbaijani fire. And for the first time, foreigners found themselves in the crosshairs, really, of a 
of an Azerbaijani attack on Armenian territory. Two Indian nationals were injured, and at that time, we actually found them. We sought them out. Uh, we went and we interviewed them, and um, yeah, they had um, they were uh, wounded. And later, Armenia's government decided to uh, change the location of the plant. Another incident that happened this year that's. Um, that was uh, shocking, I guess. I mean, I don't know if shocking is the right word anymore. Two Azerbaijani soldiers crossed into Armenia from Nakhichevan. Uh, one of them was caught shortly after, you know, being in Armenia by local Armenians. The other one went on to murder uh, a, a security guard at the Zankezur copper plant. Uh, he was apprehended by Armenian law enforcement eventually. Both servicemen were tried in Armenia. One was given an 11-year sentence for crossing the border illegally. The other one was given a life sentence for murdering the guard. We don't have final confirmation, official confirmation, but we're assuming because we don't have any, uh, we didn't have any other Azerbaijani captives in Armenia that it was exactly these two mm -hmm. Azerbaijani prisoners that were part of the POW exchange that happened uh, pretty recently. These two were exchanged with 32 Armenian POWs. This was on December 13. The exchange took place on the Armenian-Azerbaijani border in the northeast in Tavush. Most of the 32 Armenians servicemen were captured by Azerbaijan in December of 2020 near Hadrut and uh, Khazabert in Artsakh. This was after the signing of the November 9 ceasefire agreement. Among the repatriated servicemen uh, was also an Artsakh Armenian who was captured in September of this year and an army reservist from Armenia who had strayed into Azerbaijan territory from his post in Jermuk. This was in August and was already sentenced to life imprisonment in Baku. According to human rights lawyers, 23 Armenians uh, remain in Azerbaijani captivity. Uh, I think it's important here that we talk about what happened with the some of the most of the leadership of Artsakh. This number includes eight current and former leaders of Gharapakh who were arrested by Baku following Azerbaijan's September 19 offensive. Um, these include the former presidents Arkady Khugasyan, Baku Sahagyan, Aray Karutunyan, um, former State Minister Rupen Vartanyan, David Ishranyan, a member of parliament, and others. They were all taken from different locations, and um, we saw the images of them handcuffed and being um, sort of taken into a, a Baku prison, and it was... I don't know about you. I mean, I'm sure for you, I'm sure for every Armenian it was difficult to see those images. So they are among the 23 Armenians who are now in Azerbaijani captivity. And just to kind of put this all prisoner exchange in, in perspective, because it did not happen through the mediation of a third uh, country or any kind of around negotiations table. It happened after Yerevan and Baku announced that they will release captured military servicemen as a sign of goodwill. And uh, the idea was to take tangible steps in building confidence between the two countries. So Armenia also agreed to support Azerbaijan's bid to host the 29th session of the Conference of Parties as COP29 uh, by withdrawing its own candidacy, which we did. Right. Well, in the midst of all of this, uh, and like you mentioned earlier, Rubin, after the September 2022 attack, when it became clear that Russia was no longer Armenia's security guarantor, 
heard that Armenia could no longer rely on Russia. And then later this year, we also <clears throat> found out that Russia had not fulfilled its obligations in delivering weapons for which Armenia had paid uh, close to $400 million for. Uh, we saw a shift in Armenia's foreign policy and it, in, in its attempt to diversify uh, its relations. Uh, perhaps we can call this a strategic decoupling from Russia and diversification of its security. And so what we, we have seen is Armenia sort of snubbing Russia at the different platforms where they uh, coexist. And this includes the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a military alliance, the CIS, which is Commonwealth of Independent States, and the not so much, but also the EEU, which is the Eurasian uh, Economic Union. So Armenia either did not participate in any of the meetings or participated at a lower level than the highest uh, invited uh, mm -hmm. official. So this has kind of been uh, back and forth to, to an extent. However, the latest news Mm -hmm. is that Pashinyan recently participated in the CIS meeting in Petersburg. There, he met with President Putin and had an unofficial conversation with Ilham Aliyev. This was Aliyev's and Pashinyan's first face-to-face -face, um, conversation since uh, the attack in September. On January 1, Armenia will take over the presidency of the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, and speaking at the council on December 25, Pashinyan said that the founding principle of the EU is that it is an economic union, thus it cannot have a political or geopolitical agenda. So I think what happened was we saw pivot toward the West, and this was not welcomed by either Baku or Moscow. And Armenia was trying to, you know, diversify its relations, its security architecture. Uh, and then at the end of this year, all of a sudden we saw them sort of, I don't want to say turning around again, but understanding that perhaps they shouldn't have angered the Russians as much as they did. And your friend Maria Zakharova couldn't, you know, make all the comments that she was making. Well, Maria, I'm just going to go back to our latest security, one of our security reports, recent security reports, where uh, it's kind of like security independence. This is what the context uh, that uh, Nerses Kopalian puts it in, is just like not being overly dependent on one, not severing uh, connections right. or communication, how, uh, but also having alternatives and a di diversified security partners and sources sure, for... Sure, it's about uh, not putting all of your eggs in, in one, one basket. basket. Yeah. So, speaking of which, this year, the new baskets. No, no, this, <laughs> I'm just like, uh, well, Armia did uh, this year actually move forward with this plan because Armia did acquire arms from India, which was actually a problem for Russia to begin with when Armia, because they hindered the first mm -hmm. uh, transfer of weapons from India. However, we did get weapons from India and France this year. Uh, reportedly, Armenia uh, acquired advanced artillery systems and the Akash air defense missile systems from India. In July, uh, Indian media reported that uh, the, it delivered a batch of weapons to Armenia via Iran already. Right, and defense cooperation with France finally bore fruits when in October, the defense ministers of the two countries signed deals for three radars and a letter of intent for an unspecified number of Mistral short-range air defense missile systems. In November, France delivered Bastion armored vehicles to Armenia through Georgia. According to a French Senate report, 24 vehicles have been delivered and 26 will be delivered after production. The Senate report recommended the delivery of Caesar artillery systems, and these were 
these were positive steps uh, for Armenia to be able to acquire weapons from, you know, other countries. Which Not according to Zakharova, <laughs> she kept saying and warning us that these are faulty uh, weapons <laughs> right. and no one else wanted in the world. And basically, uh, France managed to just like trick Armenia into buying. Yeah, well, them. there were many warnings from Moscow yeah. about Armenia's uh, closer ties with the European Union, with the U.S. And in that context, this year, on September 11 to 20, Armenia hosted the Eagle Partner 2023 joint Armenian-U.S. military exercise, which involved stabilization tasks between conflicting parties during peacekeeping missions. The participants included 85 American and 175 Armenian soldiers. Okay, and also, Maria, part of this having alternative security mm-hmm. <laughs> concept, in January, uh, the EU established a civilian observation mission with an arm unarmed staff of around 100 to monitor Armenia's border with Azerbaijan. It was launched in February. In December, the EU agreed to strengthen the observation capacity of the European Union mission in Armenia, UMA, by increasing its presence on the ground from 138 uh, to 209. These are staff members. Right, right. And I mean, it's, look, I don't know that uh, the UMA is going to be able to prevent Uh, an Azerbaijani uh, attack if Baku decides to do that. But it is a deterrent factor. It is a show of solidarity and support for Armenia. Um, In November, the EU agreed to explore the possibility of providing non-lethal support to Armenia under the European Peace Facility. EU spokesperson has said that it would include anything that is not used to fight. It could be a field hospital, protective equipment. It can also be increasing capacities to fight cyber attacks, disinformation. I mean, it's, it's a wide spectrum and it will be up to member states to decide what the EU will eventually um, decide. And so this is interesting because uh, initially um, when Armenia had requested support under the EPF, the European Peace Facility, um, they were rejected by the by Brussels. But after the ethnic cleansing and um, uh, what took place, now there is um, a good chance that Armenia might receive some deterrence weapons or some deterrence capabilities under the EPF. And also this year, Armenia ratified, uh, speaking of things that angered Russia, uh, ratified the Rome Statute. Uh, Mm -hmm. This was a process that began well before 2023. However, it was kind of finalized, ratified Mm -hmm. uh, this year. Uh, It was a point of tension with Russia because after the arrest warrant for Putin, international arrest warrant for Putin. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. uh, Well, uh, the uh, statute also would stipulate that uh, if he visited Armenia, he would could be mm-hmm. uh, arrested, which Armenia said uh, each country has the freedom to follow certain aspects of the statute, and we would have an agreement with Russia not to do that. However, mm-hmm. this somehow, especially Zaharova, did not like. And uh, uh, Russia kept holding against Armenia for the longest time. Mm-hmm. However, this year, uh, just months ago, we went ahead and ratified right. it fully. Now, just to come back to how Azerbaijan has reacted to uh, international or Western condemnation of its ethnic cleansing. You know, it's it's really started to counter the condemnations by even more aggressive rhetoric. In an unprecedented move, it started to condemn the United States and questioned its mediation efforts. Since then, Azerbaijan has been boycotting mediation platforms offered by Brussels and Washington. Uh, Baku is particularly critical of France because France was that one country in the EU that came out swinging uh, against it. And... Uh, 
just what, what three days ago on December 26th, Azerbaijan announced the expulsion of two French diplomats after repeatedly accusing uh, Paris of siding with uh, Yerevan in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. The Azerbaijani foreign ministry said it summoned French ambassador and Bouillon to express strong protest over the actions of two employees. Uh, we don't know what those actions are, it's just that they were apparently incompatible with their diplomatic status and they were ordered to leave the country within 48 hours. And then... Uh, and France also expelled two members of Azerbaijan diplomatic mission in France. Yeah, well. This is... Very fresh news. Army and Turkey relations, Maria, that's where we're at at this point. Well, Turkey has repeatedly said that it will coordinate all its uh, normalization efforts with Armenia, with uh, with Azerbaijan. This has been the overarching theme. Uh, however, this year, after the following the deadly earthquake that mm-hmm. hit uh, Turkey in the beginning of February, Armenia did send humanitarian aid and rescue forces to Syria and Turkey. 29 rescuers were sent to Syria, 27 to Turkey. Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan also offered condolences to the Turkish uh, president. Uh, also, Armenian Foreign Affairs Minister Arat Mirzoyan visited Turkey in the aftermath of the earthquake. On February 15, Mirzoyan met his Turkish counterpart, Mevlut Cavusoglu, in Ankara. The two foreign ministers had closed-door meeting, after which they made statements for the press. And also this year, the Armenian government allocated 390,000 uh, US uh, from its reserve fund to provide humanitarian aid to the earthquake-affected population in Turkey and Syria. And also an ongoing thing, there has been this bridge that is being repaired apparently between Armenia and Turkey to allow for um, people with uh, citizenship of third countries to be able to go, you know, back and forth. You know, as you know, the border between Armenia and Turkey has been closed for the past 30 years. And 70 years before that. So there's like <laughs> yeah. this legend saying that it's the longest closed border on uh, on Earth. Well, well, there you go. Well, you know... It's one step forward, three steps back with Armenia-Turkey relations. In April, Turkish authorities canceled permission granted to one of Armenia's airlines to fly over their airspace. And this was because, according to their foreign minister, in response to the unveiling of a controversial monument in Yerevan commemorating those involved in an assassination plot against Ottoman Turkish officials who had carried out the Armenian genocide. It was uh, about nemesis. And so it's uh, at this point, it's not clear. People are always so hopeful that Armenia-Turkey relations will be resolved. Um, And this year we really didn't see uh, very much. Um, Pashinyan did participate in Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's inauguration ceremony in June, uh, but um, they still remain very, very uh, cool relations between the two countries. Well, they're asking Azerbaijan at this point, and as we know, and uh, the Armenia-Azerbaijan peace talks, what we call the Armenia-Azerbaijan peace talks, have not moved forward this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, negotiations are basically not happening. Uh, We don't know if another one is planned in the near future. Uh, So... Well, it's a, it's a chain chain reaction, I think, it or it's, it it's connectivity. But we did have some new uh, uh, embassies and uh, diplomatic ties, uh, establishing new embassies and diplomatic ties this year. Armenia established diplomatic ties with Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Armenia and Hungary uh, acted on the reestablishment of ties, which was agreed in December of 22 already by mutually appointing ambassadors, um, Hungary's foreign 
foreign minister visited Yerevan. Uh, Canada opened an embassy in there Armenia this year, which we knew was going to happen uh, some years. We were waiting for it. Yeah, and Armenia-UK launched their uh, strategic dialogue. Armenia and the UK are discussing defense cooperation as part of the strategic dialogue. Um, and so there, Armenia is being... I mean, we're seeing Arad Mirzoyan traveling all over the world. Um, I don't know what fruits it's going to bear, but there is a lot of uh, activity on the diplomatic front. Well, Iran did open a consulate in this unique region. Uh, Russia keeps saying that it intends to open one. There was a recent uh, announcement regarding this also. France is also considering a consulate in Armenia's unique mm-hmm. region. In other news uh, in the country, we had... Um, elections in Armenia's capital in Yerevan and on October 10 Yerevan city council elected Tikran Avinian as mayor of Yerevan. Avinian the candidate of the ruling civil contract party was elected with 32 votes in favor five against the public voice and republic party secured the necessary quorum for their uh, 13 mandates avinian had lacked three votes to be elected mayor which was filled by the republic party the opposition force signed a coalition memorandum with civil contract and the republic party gave all eight votes it had to avinian the details are important because Avinian's party was not able to secure a clear majority. majority. We did not know for a while who was going to be uh, in a block with whom. This mm-hmm. was an interesting, uh, and it was like a devastating way to actually to see how uh, the political scene in Yerevan might change or might not, who would come to power in Yerevan, which everyone knows is... Uh, one thirds of the uh, population of Armenia. So whoever holds power in Yerevan holds yeah, a lot of power. That's for sure. With economic news, it's been really interesting, hasn't it, Rubina? That at the beginning of the year, Armenia registered double digit economic growth, 12.1% in the first quarter. Second quarter, it fell to 9.1%. And uh, now it's at 7.4%. The government is projecting a 7% economic growth for 2024. With everything that's been going on in the country, uh, it's hard to imagine how this is possible. But It's easy to see, however, because yes, walking on the streets uh-huh. with new businesses, all businesses full... Uh, you sometimes need to reserve a place at a pub in Yerevan <laughs> right now. This was a new experience for me. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to, reservations at to a go to, to your local pub. Yes. Okay. Well, I don't go to local pubs, so um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how this ended up in our a year in review, uh, this, this bit of <laughs> information. Well, look, we it, it was really difficult to try to piece together what happened this year in one podcast um, because so many of um, the developments are interconnected. Uh, they're not linear in terms of, you know, how they developed. Um, so much goes back to 2020, so much goes back earlier than that. And then we have, we've now, you know, finished 2023, but we're still talking about 2022 September after Azerbaijan's uh, attack on Armenia, um, the blockade and the ethnic cleansing, the depopulation, the loss uh, of Artsakh um, has taken over everything else that happened in the country. And I think that also informed how we approached this podcast. Yeah, and to be absolutely honest, that was not the text that we had in front of us. Uh, uh, There was like very uh, naturally we jumped over some things Mm -hmm. that we had more details on and we uh, Mm -hmm. went into 
things that we just just remembered and added that. So uh, we did try our best to sum up the year in a more uh, journalistic way with a lot of more numbers and uh, detail. But uh, maybe well, we. But we I think giving our own sort of take, our own understanding of of events is also important because we are, you know, <clears throat> among the few people who follow the news all the time because that's our job. Which makes it all the more uh, more difficult Sometimes. because there's so much more information that we needed to add and how to make this kind mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, less than 150 pages. <laughs> <laughs> like most of our briefings are. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us throughout the year. We were just earlier going through some of our um, Newswatch reports and they're just hundreds of pages of information that we, um, you know, put together and published uh, on our website. We tried to give some deeper understanding, some context, some nuance to everything that was happening. I don't know that we were always successful because sometimes this was, <laughs> we've been saying this every year, but it has been a, a, a difficult, particularly difficult year. And uh, we hope to continue bringing you uh, not only stories about what's happening, not only the news about what's happening, but also trying to help all of us understand what happened, how it happened, why it happened. I think these are important things and how we move forward. Maybe the last part sooner rather than later. Hopefully. How we move, move forward. Well, with that, we are closing out the year. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting us. Thank you for sending in letters and sometimes chocolate, which we lovingly eat. And chips. And chips. And um, we hope everyone has a safe, a joyous holiday season because for those of you who are listening, we don't celebrate on the 25th. We celebrate Christmas on the 6th. So have a happy new year. We hope 2024 will bring... Be careful, Marie. Be careful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we hope everybody stays safe and has a peaceful holiday season. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.